Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 152 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Cindy Lee, and I feel like squealing like a little teenage girl or something. I just adore Cindy. I worked with her a lot while I was at Yoga Journal and for years, and I always just felt like we connected really well. So having this conversation with her was so much fun, genuinely. And I also have a great deal of respect for her. So I'll just give you a a snippet of her bio, even though I'm sure you know who she is. Cindy is the first female Western yoga teacher to fully integrate yoga asana and Tibetan Buddhism in her teaching. In 1998, she founded Om Yoga Center in New York City, which became a total mecca. Cindy is the author of five books, including Yoga Body, Buddha Mind, which you have probably heard of or have, and also a memoir called May I Be Happy, a memoir of love, yoga, and changing my mind. In this conversation, I got to know a little bit more about Cindy's history, including how she went from being a professional dancer to becoming entrenched in yoga and Buddhism and founding OM. I also got to ask her a question I have always, always, always wanted to ask her, and we had a fun time talking about that. And then we talked about the most recent part of her life, which includes doing a chaplaincy at the Upaya Zen Center under Roshi Joan Halifax, and having a double hip replacement. Not easy, right? So it was really helpful, I think, to all of us for her to share this story and to share how all of these years of meditation practice and asana have given her a strong foundation to go through this type of surgery and, quite frankly, this type of life change. She's really honest, and I just appreciated it so much and had a great time talking to her. So enjoy the interview with Cindy. I actually do want to begin with some of your personal history, because I think it's so interesting and it really feeds into where you are now. So I know that you started out as a dancer and after college, you moved to New York as a professional dancer and you were dancing. Did you discover yoga while you were dancing? Actually, I started yoga when I went to college. And I went to a small liberal arts college in Southern California in 1971. So, of course, it was the hotbed of alternative religions, etc. And there was a yoga class at my college. And I took the yoga class. And it was so amazing, Andrea, because I don't think yoga teachers can be like this in college anymore. But this teacher was a real yogi. And so we were doing asana, meditation, kriyas. Wow, wow. Yeah, silent retreat in Joshua Tree Desert, reading Yogananda. It was really cool. And so that's when I started. And so I was going to ask you if you discovered meditation later, but it sounds like it all happened at the same time for you. It happened at the same time for me, but I didn't really I didn't like it that much. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. In college, it's it's a hard age to like sitting quietly. The truth is I didn't really like meditation that much until I found Buddhist meditation. Mm. Um, And that, that wasn't Buddhist meditation. It was more like 
close your eyes and sit still. Mm-hmm. That was the whole of the instruction, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's, you know, almost impossible to do. And then about four years, like right after college, I had a gap year before I went to graduate school. And that year I had a boyfriend and we were totally into fasting and we were vegetarians and we were into Dick Gregory and we, we started doing TM. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I liked that. And I did that for several years and then I didn't. I have never done TM. I, I, I actually don't even know the technique. Well, you get a mantra. You go and you have to have a hundred dollars back then. Anyway, you had to have a hundred dollars and I had to borrow it. That's a lot. Yeah. It was a lot for me then, you know, and I had to borrow it, but I had a part-time job at, at a magazine, little local magazine in Orange County, California. And one of the saleswomen there was into TM and she said, you know what? I'm going to pay for you to go get a mantra because I think you'd like it. Oh. So we went and got our mantras and, you know, you're one-on-one and you get given a mantra and you're not supposed to tell anybody else what it is. And you just recite it in your head. And that's basically the technique that I learned was that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I learned anything else. Like if your mind strays, come back to the mantra. I didn't get that kind of instruction. Yeah. You just sit and you recite the mantra. And of course, after doing that for several years, for me, I was like, well, the mantra is like an earworm. Mm. And I can think everything else at the same time. So I wasn't you know, convinced that it was really doing anything beneficial for me. Right, right. It wasn't actually training you. It was, yeah, yeah, you could sort of bypass. Yeah, interesting. I'm just going to cut to the chase because there's something I've been wanting to ask you for ever. Really? Yes. And back when we worked together at Yoga Journal, I think I must have thought it would be unprofessional if I asked you this. It's not a scary question at all. Don't worry. But now that I get to just have a conversation with you on my own podcast, I get to ask you, what was it like working with Cindy Lauper? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been okay if you'd asked me that. Um, (laughs) It was kind of stressful, actually, Mm. because this was in about 1982, I think. And I knew Cindy Lauper because I had a dance company with another woman named Mary Ellen and a guy named Pierce Turner and Pierce did the music and Mary Ellen and I did the choreography and we had this group called XXY Dance Music. Hmm. We did a concert at St. Mark's on the Bowery Church in the East Village in probably 1980, something like that. And Pierce made a kind of choir that was speaking. Hmm. So they were sort of chanting, you know, and he knew Cindy Lauper because he had a record deal on Sony records and so did she, and they were both completely undiscovered Mm. and they were friends. And so he invited her to come and be in that choir. So we did this concert and she was in the choir and nobody knew who she was. And she was, you know, hadn't made an album yet. Did she have her like signature look at that time? No. Like a little, no. Okay. I don't even remember what she looked like. Okay. So, you know, that tells you. Yeah. But she had an incredible voice, of course. But she really liked our choreography. So when she got a deal 
with Sony, and then they were going to make a single of Girls Just Want to Have Fun, she asked us to choreograph it because she didn't know any other choreographers, mm. and she liked the work. So we did, but we had to do it really fast. There were a lot of producers telling us what they needed and what they didn't need, and Cindy was nervous, and she had her manager, who she was also was her boyfriend, and she hasn't been with him for a long time, but, you know, so there was kind of pressure there. And then Hulk Hogan. Oh, that's was right. The- He's in the video. Yeah. So, but, you know, it was, we made it up and it was fun in that way, um, you know, to be on a set. It was the first one we made. We ended up doing about, I'd say, at least 25 videos for MTV. And that was our very first one. We got $250 and we split it. Oh my gosh. That is hysterical. I mean, so I was born in 1972. So I was 10 when that (laughs) video came out, which means I was like the MTV. I was that generation of MTV. So all of your work there, I was at home, like probably trying to learn all the steps and, and dance along. And that video is just that song. And that video is just so iconic. It's so fun. I know. Well, the next time I see you, we can do the dances together. Totally. I'm a really good 80s dancer. Really good. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Once you get to like the 90s and hip hop, I'm not, you know, can't really hold my own, but 80s, no problem. No problem. (laughs) That's kind of thing. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me how you transitioned from being a dancer to being a full-time yoga teacher. I mean, you owned one of the biggest yoga studios in in Manhattan for a long time. You're also very groundbreaking in that you incorporated meditation into your yoga teaching in like a clear, active way. So how did that whole transition happen? I was dancing. We were choreographing for MTV. And also then I had my own dance company, Modern Dance, called Big Moves, Lee, hmm. Big Moves, Inc., you know, and in the late 80s, I met Gallic Rinpoche, who is my root guru, and he's a Tibetan lama. He passed away two years ago. But I was, you know, really, you know, embedded in the downtown art scene in the East Village. And the 80s in the East Village was like, I don't know, I, I heaven. Pretty wild, you know? right? I'm so glad I was there then. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, nobody had any money. Everybody was trying to get grants. Everybody was trying to do fundraising. Everybody was, you know, working together. Oh, you make music. I make dance. You're a painter. You know, mm-hmm. let's do a show that goes 24 hours. You know, whatever we could think of, we were just doing it. And we didn't care if we didn't have any money. And everybody had side gigs. I can type really, really fast. So I can have a side gig doing, you know, uh, typing and stuff like that. Um, But so I knew uh, some artists also that were were starting to make it or had already made it, like Allen Ginsberg, like Philip Glass. Philip Glass was a really early on big supporter and really like a donor to me, you know, gave me a rehearsal studio for a couple of years, stuff like that. Yeah, he was great and, you know, still a dear friend. And he 
and Alan were also friends. And, you know, I mean, you just walk around the East Village back then and Alan Ginsberg was everywhere. And he would come up and give you a giant kiss on the lips. But, you know, they were so nice. They were so generous. They were so supportive of me and other young artists. And I loved being with them. And they were students of Gaelic Rinpoche. I mean, for a long time, I've been thinking about Buddhism and wanting to learn what it is. And I was reading different books. You know, as a book Buddhist, as Roshi Jung would say, I was a book Buddhist <laughs> like 10 years. And then I went to see the Dalai Lama. And when I was at the Dalai Lama, my friend Rudy Wurlitzer came up to me and said, oh, are you interested in this? I'm going to help you. So he took me to all the different Rinpoches and different Dharma teachers that came to New York and introduced me to a lot. But he kept saying, I think Gaelic Rinpoche should be your teacher. Hmm. So one day I was over at Philip Glass's house. and We used to all go on vacation together every summer, a group of us friends. And Phil said, oh, okay, so yeah, I'm going to write on the back of this you know, notice what plane you should get you know, when you buy your tickets. We can all go on the same plane together. And when I went home and I opened that paper, it was an announcement for Gallic Rinpoche coming. Hmm. And so I called Phil and I said, can I go to this? And he said, I think you're supposed to go to that. So I went to meet Rinpoche and it was at Philip's house because we didn't have a space in New York yet. And as soon as I met him, you know, that was it. He was my teacher. So my mind really turned to the Dharma. I was just into it. You know, I didn't understand half of what he was talking about most of the time, but I didn't care. I wanted to be there. And and that really is still true for my life now. So it was kind of like I'll have what they're having. I wanted to have what Alan and Phil were having. And so that became very deep within me. And around the same time or a little after that, Jiva Mukti was in the East Village. Jiva Mukti Yoga Center had opened, and a lot of dancers were no longer going to dance class. Because hmm. everybody would take dance class in the afternoon, and then you'd go to rehearsal at night, or you'd go to perform at night. And that was the life. And people were starting to go to yoga instead. Huh. Because it was a little bit more interesting, and I think maybe it's it's different now, but some of the dancers, well, a lot of our dance teachers died of AIDS. Oh, yeah. There weren't a lot of teachers that we, you know, were working with. So we started going to yoga. And so these two things really came together in me so powerfully is, is studying with Gallic Rinpoche and just, you know, taking a bath in Buddha Dharma and practicing my sadhanas every day and then going to Jiva Mukti, where it was a very spiritual approach to yoga. And it was also a super vigorous vinyasa. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I loved it because I was a dancer, so I could get my movement jones from the asana practice. And I loved the spiritual vibe. But I wasn't a Hindu. So, you know, it, it satisfied that Jones to a certain degree, but eventually I left because because the Buddhist path was my path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel similarly to you. I for meditation, I always turn to Buddhist teachers. Mm-hmm. It just I don't know. It just resonates really well for me, and I feel like yeah. the way that things are explained and broken down for my like 
feeble Western mind. <laughs> like, it's just, they just, they're just so well explained and, and clear and simple, obviously without being easy. You know, it's, it's yeah. just like, it's so rich. Grounded. Yeah. You know, it's never about sort of like leave your body and float about and then, you know, come back when the bell rings. Uh, not, not that anybody else has said that either, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's very specific. It's very clear. And it is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And because of that, you have a container mm-hmm. for working. Mm-hmm. You know, so I kept dancing then, but I started making dances that were about Dharma topics. You know, meditation started to apply to everything, mm. you know, and then I did my last concert with Allen Ginsberg performing live with me. And then I was just done, you know, huh. I was 44 and I was done. I just, all I wanted to do really was yoga and, and Buddhism. Is, is that around the time that you opened Om, or had you opened it before then? I opened Om after that. Okay. Okay. So I might not have exact ages right. I opened Om in 1998. Okay. Yeah. So that was probably when I was 44. But anyway, you get it. That's like a, that's a <laughs> nice long dance career. I mean, I don't, I don't know too many people who dance that long. Yeah. 18 years. That's that was awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now you are still, I mean, it's also kind of really lovely that you discovered the Dharma and it's still such a potent part of your life. So we, we spoke recently and you told me you're, you did your chaplaincy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. When I turned 60, my husband, Brad, really wanted to give me a good present. And he was really nervous about it. You know, like, seems like you have to really think of something amazing for some 60th birthday, right? So he he comes up with this idea. He says, I know I'm going to pay for a retreat for you to go on. And I thought, that's the worst present. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Because I already go on retreats all the time, you know. But somehow it was the perfect present because it jarred me into thinking there's a retreat I wanted to go on for years, which is called Rahatsu. And it's, it's sort of the, the, you know, the most hardcore Zen retreat that happens in December. And it ends on December 8th, which is the day that the Buddha saw the morning star and became enlightened. And Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, it's always led by Roshi Joan Halifax and Inkyo Roshi. And both of them are American female Zen masters. Mm. And I was really wanting to study with both of them. And so I went to that retreat. And when I went to that retreat, it was really hard. You know, and, and half the time while I was in it, I was thinking, I'm never doing this again. This is this is just my back is killing me, you know. And what's the point? You know, what's the point of being tortured like this kind of thing? And at the very last day, they said, we're opening up registration Next year, just for the people here, I was the first person to sign up for next year. You know, it's like, <laughs> I was so, so into it somehow. And I really connected to Roshi Joan and I connected to Upaya. 
And then the next year I took vows. I took Jukai and stepped into that lineage. And, you know, Gellick Rinpoche knew about this and he was friends with Roshi Joan and he taught us that you can have more than one teacher. Mm, that's great. Um, because, you know, the Heart Sutra is the Heart Sutra. So it is great. And, um, and so then another thing happened then is I was at a retreat there and this guy, Sebastian Hitzig, I kind of met him at this retreat and he said, I'm going to do chaplaincy training. Why don't you do chaplaincy training with me? Come on, let's do it together. And I was like, no, I don't want to. You do it, Sebastian. <laughs> so, tell me about it, you know? Yeah. Like, and he's like, no, come on, come on, come on. And I said, I'm just, I'm not really called to that. And he was like, come on, come on, come on. Anyway, talk to me into it. And I applied. <laughs> Must have been a very persuasive man. Or he knew something. He saw something in you. That's really what it is. Yeah. He's just had a magical insight because he didn't take the training. Wow. Um, yeah. He didn't take the training and I've never seen him again. Oh my gosh. But we're in touch. And he is a very special person who's just recently had a heart transplant. Oh, wow. And he's under 50. Oh, my goodness. And and he's been my cheerleader the whole time. And I love him so much. And I've never seen him again in real life. But so I ended up taking this training and I didn't know why. Hmm. You know, the first night you're supposed to say why you're there. And I actually said, I don't know why. But it really has changed my life and been a new direction that I'm going in, which is, you know, when you look back at it, completely natural because I was always meditating and I was always in love with the Dharma. And even as I, the way I taught yoga was yoga as as mindfulness, you know, asana as mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And even the way I taught people to teach was a form of mindfulness and compassion. And so it became natural as I got older. And then as I started having a lot of pain in my body, that I was leaning more towards Dharma, teaching Dharma, teaching meditation, and unable even to do yoga for quite a while. So it was perfect. Wow. The perfect for me. Yeah. It was a two-year program, right? It's kind of a two-year and change program. So I think it started in March 2015. And then I graduated in March 2017. And then in March 2018, I was ordained as a lay Buddhist chaplain. Hmm. So when you say it's changed your life and your direction, is it internal change or it does is it changed your teaching as well? Both. The first year of chaplaincy is nicknamed inner chaplaincy. And many of the people in this or are very serious, long-time Dharma people like me. But we had a lot of teaching from great teachers, and we also, you know, you read a lot of books, you do field trips, you do volunteer work, you do a lot of stuff that brings up stuff within you, and then how to look at that and be with that and and move through it mm-hmm. and transform it so that when you start to work with others, like one teacher I had said, you can't clean the floor with a dirty mop. So, you know, we were cleaning our own mops mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in many levels, in many ways. And so that was powerful because I found some things about me that it weren't, I didn't like that much. And 
a lot of ways to look at that coming up with the, you know, practice of not turning away mm. was super powerful. And um, the tenets of the chaplaincy program or being a chaplain in this program are bearing witness. First one is not knowing, then bearing witness, and then taking compassionate action or not based mm. on the first two. So you can even apply that to yourself. Yeah. You know, not knowing. I don't know. I don't know what's going on even inside myself. But can I bear witness to what's arising? Mm-hmm. And then however I respond to my own mind and my body and my heart just co- needs to be compassionate. And then as Roshi Jones says, compassion, which is innate, but it's also an emergent process. So just like you can develop strength in your body in asana or mobility uh, or coordination, you can also cultivate your natural capacity for compassion. I love that. And, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it makes me so optimistic. There, there was actually, rec- I think the study was at Harvard about, there was a, a compassion study where they showed people quick images of, like of people suffering or mm-hmm. of, of suffering and people who had did eight weeks of compassion training didn't turn away. Like their eye, they did eye tracking mm-hmm. and their eyes, when they tested them before and after their eyes would be less likely to turn away from the, the suffering. Yeah. And that does happen. And then of course, other things can happen like despair and empathy fatigue Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we learned about that. And, you know, I mean, mindfulness meditation, as I've learned it, is a practice of seeing things as they are and working with things as they are, not as we wish they were or as we wish they weren't or how they used to be or how we hope they might be. But what's going on right now? Mm-hmm. What's right in front of me? What am I meeting? What is meeting me? And can I be with that? And, you know, inside yourself, in your family, in your world, and coming back to that place helps you avoid despair. Mm-hmm. Because when you emerge your compassion, you do have a broken heart all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you need it in order to actually be able to be in the present, <laughs> to be able to cope with the present, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you, you mentioned that you started to have pain in your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have had two hip replacements in the past. It was, la- it was a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. You're a year out. Yep. Just a year out. So while you were doing the chaplaincy, you were probably at like the peak of your pain, right? It started then. Mm. I've had like SI 
joint pain for 30 years. Wow. Probably, you know, <clears throat> on and off, this side, that side, and all through my dancing, and then through yoga, too. And sometimes it would go away, mm-hmm. you know, completely. And then, you know, maybe I didn't have any pain for six months. And then I could just step in a certain way, and I never knew what that way was. And I would have a screeching pain in my sort of psoas area also. So, you know, it's not new that I had pain in my hip zone, you know. But when I went to chaplaincy, I wonder if, you know, people say, is it because of yoga? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, is it it because of dancing? Maybe. Right. You know, when we were dancing in the 80s, we just were do whatever like one time we were doing this thing we we're trying to figure out how to jump on our backs like lie down on your back and then kick your legs and you could jump up mm-hmm. you know land on your back like that was really a good idea so <laughs> you know, and we we would also say like why don't we pick up the men instead of having the men pick us up uh-huh. <laughs> i got a whiplash from that and actually had to perform with a thing around my neck you know oh, um I know. The show must go on. <laughs> the show must go on. Absolutely. Yeah. But when I was in chaplaincy, I was sitting, you know, you're sitting on the floor for hours and hours. Um, and I started to have a pain in the outside of my right hip that felt like somebody was taking a really long needle and stabbing it all the way into me. Well, And it was the kind of pain that went up the back of my neck and made me feel like I might pass out. Oh my gosh. It was really bad, really, really intense. And, you know, you're not supposed to move in Zen meditation. Yeah. And I, um, nothing if not, you know, the hardcore warrior, um, that's, I'm not going to move. Nothing is going to make me move. And I moved because it was too much. Um, You know, that that was a big deal for me. I was like, well, I, I have to move. And I didn't know what was wrong with me, though. And I did what I always did, which is body work and get, you know, mm-hmm. get a little physical therapy or, you know, different things. Like I did some Feldenkrais and I did some, you know, acupuncture and nothing made it better because if you don't have cartilage in your hips, nothing is going to make it better. But I didn't go to an orthopedist because I didn't know what an orthopedist was. And I don't like doctors anyway. Mm-hmm. So, oh. That was, you know, really, I'm going to give advice to anybody who's going through this. Don't wait like I did. Mm. And then Francesca Cervero, I don't know if you know her. No. Well, she's awesome. And she had a torn labrum. And so she said to me, you should go to an orthopedist. And I know her and I trust her. So I was like, hmm, okay. And I went to an orthopedist and he took an x-ray and said, you are in end-stage arthritis. So, sounds horrible. So, yeah, it does sound horrible. End stage anything sounds horrible. So what yeah. does that actually mean? That means there is no cartilage whatsoever left in my hip and it's bone on bone. Oh, and wow. that's why it's agonizing, excruciating pain. I mean, I was at a place where I could hardly walk. But and so he said, you know, you need hip replacement. And at that point I was like, I'm in. Great, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. I had no resistance whatsoever. I mean, I was absolutely desperate. And and my surgeon was really cool, you know, and he explained everything to me and I trusted him and 
he said, you know, you, we can schedule this for like in a month because you have to do a lot of procedures before you do a surgery and it takes about a month. And I said, well, I can't because I have some professional engagements and I can't cancel. And also that retreat, Rohatsu, that big retreat. Yeah. Had committed to Roshi Joan that I would take that. Uh-huh. I, I couldn't break that commitment. So I went for four months before I had the surgery. And I mean, like the pain was so bad that I could even feel my mind getting soft. Yeah, I can imagine. If if ever we doubted there's a mind-body connection, it was like, I knew then, you know, it's like, my my mind is not thinking well. Yeah. It's actually amazing that you didn't get go into depression, you know, because I mean, I think it's just so pain is so wearing on the mind and the psyche. And yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just so clear yeah. when you're in it. It's I didn't go into depression, but I, I did get pneumonia. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that the body, you know, the immune system was really stressed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't get depressed. I got a little depressed after uh-huh. my surgery. But I'm on the other side of it now. So I feel great. Yeah, (laughs) good, good. So you went in, you did the first surgery, and then you had to wait. uh, I did surgery, and then what happened, I didn't think I was going to have to have a second one. Ah, okay. And that was so weird. Like, when I came out of the surgery, you know, the doctor came out and talked to Brad. And he, Brad asked him if I would need another one on the other side. And he said, maybe in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, because, you know, I didn't spend the night in the hospital. I just went right home mm-hmm. and you're walking around going up and down steps. You know, the first day it's really raw, but it's possible. Wow. And the second day I went to the bathroom to brush my teeth and I was kind of leaning, you know, I had a walker, you know, and I was leaning against the sink for support. And when I leaned against the sink, my left hip just kind of like went thump, 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 thump. Like, like if you had ice on a pond and it just sort of like and broke open, huh. it was feeling. And that was it. Then that one was in pain and they x-rayed it. And that last little bit of cartilage went away. So 90 days after the first one, I did the second one. And that was hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure this has changed your your practices, and I'm sure you've leaned on the meditation practice to get you through. What was it like for you just immediately after, in terms of having all of these years under your belt of being connected to the Dharma? How do you feel like it helped you in that period right after? Yeah, it was really powerful because what happened was my husband took care of me for a couple of days. You'd really need somebody to take care of you for about five days. The first few days you need help. And so my friend came to take care of me from New York, my dear friend, Jennifer Brilliant, and my husband. And so I had a lot of people helping me and I felt super supportive and super grateful. And I just got to sleep and it was all great. Mm -hmm. And then it went away. You know, it was time. And Jennifer went back to New York and Brad went to work. And I was all set up, you know, he had me all set up with my legs up and my food and books and knitting and everything I needed. But still there I was. And it was the first time I'd been completely alone with myself. And 
it was almost palpable, this feeling that came over me like, this is real. Mm. You know, because the doctor tells you, oh, yeah, you're going to be up and running in two weeks. Like, literally, they think they'll be like, you know, you'll be back on your yoga mat. And, you know, you just, of course, you, if you think about it for one second, your femur gets cut off and thrown away. I mean, you're not going to be up and running in two weeks. But somehow I thought that, you mm -hmm. know, and there I was. And it was very clear to me that this was going to take a long time to get better and that my life would be different and that it was just, I was just overwhelmed. I was, you know, emotionally overwhelmed in this moment alone because there was nothing distracting me from this reality. And I felt kind of broken, hmm. you know, kind of like emotionally broken, like, Oh, you know, this is true. This is not an idea. This is not something I was thinking about that's going to happen or that did happen. It's right now. I'm right here. I can hardly move. I have a big thing in my leg. I thought I was a dancer. I really? thought I was. And all this came to me, like, without any of those words, just that as a feeling came to me. And it was so intense. And I sat with it. I didn't go, oh, I'm going to read a book. You know, mm -hmm. I'm ignore this feeling. I'm going to do some knitting. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to do something. I sat with it and I cried and I felt a lot of feelings, but I sat with it and it opened up then and was kind of like it was better to be real and to be in the truth of my life. That felt sweeter, even though I didn't like that truth, mm -hmm. than to ignore it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Away. And that was that was a pow the power of practice, I think, of all those years of practice. You were your own container in that moment, actually, so that you could yeah. feel the feelings and hold the feelings. That's how, we, how you train your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Meditation is as simple as that. Your mind goes to some other shempa, something that's seducing you. You know, that's the Tibetan word for hook, something, a, a thought that seduces you. and you practice recognizing that and coming back, staying stable. And benefits of meditation are said to be stability, clarity, and strength. And I feel like that was, I'm really glad that I, that I had that training because I think it's, for me, I would rather be in the truth of my life than pushing things away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, having gone through like a major medical thing myself in the past five years, there's this um, expression, you know, it's like you're, there's a new normal for you yeah. and your body changes that much. And I think that in order to actually get to the new normal, you have to, you have to look at it. You have to really recognize that it happened. Like you said, you can't, I mean, otherwise you're just sort of it's like you're dancing around what is you're trying yeah. to like decorate it and you're trying to make it look better and you're trying to make it feel better. And eventually that, I mean, I don't know. I think eventually that that doesn't work. Right. Yeah. It doesn't work. I, and the other thing I've learned is I've learned a lot about resiliency because then I did my usual kind of type a ambitious thing of like 
when I started, you know, to get a little bit more mobile, I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back to myself. And what I found out is I found out this partly from the doctor because I asked my doctor, like, I wanted to go to my ordination, you know, and you're not supposed to go on an airplane for a certain period of time because you might get a blood clot. And I said, I want to go to Santa Fe. And he said, what we, when, and I told him and he did the math on the calendar and he said, Oh, that's okay. In week three, this happens, but in week four, that happens in week six and seven. And they know every single step of your healing process. And even if you think you're special and maybe you'll be more amazing, you're not a more amazing. <laughs> it is, you know, it's like this is the body and this is how it heals. And no matter how ambitious I was, I could just do what I could do as I did it. And after a while, I started to notice that and be a lot more kind of compassionate to myself. You know, it's like, this is what I can do at this point. I did yoga on my back on the bed. Then I could do yoga sitting up on the edge of the bed and partly touching the wall. And then, you know, I could do something on the mat, but, you know, and it's evolved. And now I I can kind of do yoga, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, it also what I learned was, you know, the definition of resiliency is something like, I mean, there's more than one, but something like, you know, when something gets stretched out of shape, the ability to come back to your original shape. And I'm not going to go back to my original shape. And I don't even want to. Mm-hmm. because There's wisdom here now. And a lot of deepening and and I've, I've learned that too, you know, I don't want to do yoga the way I did before. And I might not have, even if I hadn't had hip replacements, like, you know, we have to let ourselves evolve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The example I'm thinking of in my own life is actually motherhood, um, especially being like a slightly older mother. There's so much humility that comes from life experience, you know, mm-hmm. and just realizing, like, I just love when you said, you know, no matter how awesome I thought I was, like, I was just going to go my body was going to heal the way it was going to heal like everyone else's. Like one of the follies of youth is feeling like you just want to be special, you know, and you Mm want to think that you can like outwit certain things or that you're better at this than that person. Or, and then you sort of get to a point where you have all this life experience and you're, and you can either let it kind of beat you down and go into despair or just look at it and, I don't know, and appreciate the things you still can do or appreciate that you are quote unquote average, you know? Actually, that's a very interesting thing that I've thought about a lot because I have a friend who last year almost died because she had the flu, but then had to go to the hospital. And it turned out that she had a super bug, Mm. you know, it wasn't MRSA, but it was another one like that, like, you know, that can kill you. And she survived and she's fine. She's great. But she told me that afterwards, she was like, no, life isn't a Disney movie. I'm not special. This could happen to me. This can happen to anybody. And, you know, I've gone through a lot of different things. Like when my father died, I felt, you know, people would say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they would tell me about their father dying and how sad they were. And I would say, no, you don't get it. I'm the you you know, no one has grieved like me, kind of. Mm-hmm. That was my thought, you know. Yeah. And then I realized that's not, you know, come on, you know. <laughs> and then my husband 
had affairs and the marriage broke up. And that seemed so kind of icky because I thought that would never happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. But it did happen to me and everything happened to me. My mother had Parkinson's and had dementia. And after a while, you start to realize that you're ordinary mm-hmm. and is a relief. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, we are special. You know, special doesn't mean you're immune from life, but each one of us is special and precious right. at the same time. So finding that kind of balance. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I was just thinking like, if you ever face any kind of like potential end of <laughs> end of life situation or just a really, really life altering health situation like you've been through. I just remember when I first learned I had breast cancer, you know, I just remember everything, my focus really narrowing and just, it sounds so cliche, but like there was just one thing that was important to me in, in, in contemplating death. And that was just like the love for the people that I love. Like that was it. That was it, you know? So I think about that in terms of the ordinariness, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter when it all kind of comes down, what you've accomplished, it matters. Like, I mean, again, sounds very cliche, but it's just, it's like, it matters. Did you love well, you know? Yeah, well, it does. And I think the more that you, you know, one realizes that you're ordinary, that you can open to that more. Yeah. You know, it feels good to me to recognize that. And, you know, sometimes I'll say that and people go, oh, no, you're not. Yeah. I'm it's not an insult. I'm not putting myself down. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be, you know, an ordinary real life woman. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's just like interesting blend because it's like you're ordinary. And then it's like, you look at other people and you think they're ordinary. And like you said, like they have the same exact love for their dog or their child or their best friend that I do. And their best friend looks at them and thinks that their sense of humor is the thing that they love so much about them and thank God they're in their life. Just like I have that, you know, it's like, we are Mm -hmm. all so special to each other. Uh, Well, like uh, two weeks ago, I think now I was up at Kripalu and I was teaching a meditation teacher training. And it was, you know, how when you're, teaching you can fall in love with your group and every group's the best group you've ever had but this was an incredible group <laughs> and you know there was an uh, an oncology surgeon and he's there because he wants to teach other oncology surgeons to meditate that's awesome and, oh my yeah. gosh so great is a captain there was a captain female captain from the NYPD New York Police Department who's running blue karma yoga teaching them other female cops. Oh my gosh. I want to talk to her for the podcast. <laughs> She's amazing. She, she teaches meditation and yoga and she was there learning for me and on and on. I mean, there was one woman there who is a social worker and she works in the last existing mental health facility in the state of Massachusetts. And all the workers are burning out because they're doing more than they're getting paid for because they... Because there's a need and they're dedicated, but they're also in despair. And this practice helped her so much. But, you know, at first you just, I sit at the front of the room and I just see a bunch of people that look really ordinary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not even yogis. There was some yogis, but a lot of them aren't, they're not like professional yogis. You know, they're not there in their Lululemon Mm -hmm. and amazing bodies, except for Natasha, 
whatever her name is, you know, but the class too, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was so honored. And, and yet each person had a chance to get up. And part of what you learn is how to give a little Dharma talk and teach meditation to a group. And they got up and they told their stories or they, not necessarily about themselves, but you know, they would give a talk and each person after the next was so remarkable Mm. and so soulful and so vulnerable and so caring and it was so moving you know it's like you say you know maybe maybe special isn't the right word but unique Mm -hmm. and yet ordinary yeah yeah it's interesting what is your embodiment practice like these days like how are you feeling in your body I am just starting to feel safe in my body and I think that's the first time that I've said that or thought that to myself. Mm-hmm. But I have had a lot of fear. I just have had a tremendous amount of fear the whole time. You know, there's lots of different weird feelings that come into your body. And there can be a lot of pain on the side of your legs and your IT bands as part of the healing if you don't work your glutes enough. And I live in a town where I don't have a lot of support, like, you know, great trainers and, you know, stuff like that, that I can work with. So I've been kind of on my own and I've been afraid and I've been afraid I might fall and I don't really understand completely how this thing works. And so what if I'm, you know, I don't want to make anything go wrong inside the, you know, in the device that's in my body. And so I've kind of been very freaked out. And I guess if you ask my doctor, he would say, well, you're at week 52 and now, you you know, it's like, (laughs) right. (laughs) She'd be like, so now your mental state is going to come in line with. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I I did too much. And so then I got a stress reaction, which is kind of like a bruise Mm. thing in the bone and um, I had to pull back and blah, blah, blah. But so now my husband and I take a walk every single day, even if it's raining. When it was really snowing, we didn't go because we go on a trail and, you know, the trail, they don't plow the trail or anything in the snow. But we, we go for a walk every day for a minimum of two miles. And, and that's become a practice for us. And that's just kind of great, you know. It's really nice. Yeah. A couple of times we got really drenched and that was sort of okay, but not ideal. And then... I am doing yoga and I have a little program that I figured out for myself, which looks like a a yoga class, but it's not very long. It's about 25 minutes, but I started to feel like I want to do some weightlifting or something like that and really build up my muscles because I think from having two surgeries pretty much back to back, I was immobilized for a long time and I have Hashimoto's. Do you know what that is? Oh, like a thyroid hypothyroid autoimmune okay so my thyroid slowed down even more oh nice don't you just love it just love it so I gained weight and then I also feel like I'm I'm a ball of mush and you know that kind of a thing that can happen when you're in your 60s anyway so so I'm starting to do some like little strength moves you know, integrated into my yoga practice. And that's really fun. Uh So I'm on fire with it right now. Cool. Yeah, that's great. I know, like 10 years ago, if I'd seen that, I would have been like, Oh, God, I know. Same with me. (laughs) Same with me. I, I, I can remember, actually, it's kind of embarrassing to admit this being in a 
story meeting for Yoga Journal and someone saying, one of the editors saying, can we do like a how to lift weights to improve your yoga practice? And I gave her the biggest stink eye. I was just like, oh my God, you don't have to lift weights to do yoga. You just do yoga. (laughs) Now I lift weights to help me with my yoga practice (laughs) all these years later. Yeah, totally. I, I was the same way. It was like, you don't need that. You're not pure. You're not really right. a yogi. Right. Sometimes it's thinking like that, but whatever. Yeah, we <laughs> all change. I mean, and that's what we were taught. That's part of what we were taught. That was that was the time, you know. Yes. And yes. things change. Yeah, yeah, and and basically, one of the benefits of living in Central Virginia, pretty isolated, definitely isolated from the yoga community, and of course. I travel all the time and go up to New York and see, you know, different people and wherever I go, London and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But mostly when I'm home, I'm, I'm on my own and it's hard for me to keep up my motivation because all I really ever want to do is lie on the couch with a cappuccino and a murder mystery and my dog. Sounds so So good. (laughs) If you say, do you want to do that? I say, yes. If you say, do you want to do anything else? I'm like, no, I just want (laughs) to. you know (laughs) but so you know I have to change it up or figure it out like how I can get going and this is what I felt you know I just felt like this is what I wanted to do and I'm reading more articles about when you get older you just have to do weightlifting yeah yeah it's true for your bones too it's good for your bones yeah Yeah, for your bones and I'm interested in bones because I had bone surgery right you know yeah yeah Desiree, I was talking to Desiree Rumba the other day, and she oh, said, yeah. her daughter is like big in the weightlifting world, isn't she? Yeah. And Desiree showed me her muscles wow. on Skype. And I was like, okay, game on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but and she's she had said, her daughter for a long time, I think, kind of helping her with that, you know, yeah, with that. Yeah. I mean, she's really into it and she does the work. I mean, you know, nobody can do the work for you. Yeah. She's always been very athletic yes. anyway, yes. you know, she has. She is. but she also said, you know, when you're older, you need to ask for help. Hmm. So I put on Facebook, I want to do some weightlifting. Anybody have any ideas? And at first people were like writing me and saying, um, well, you could do this kind of yoga strength routine or yoga is enough or, you know, nobody wanted to, to tell me how to do weight training. And then secretly people were sending me private messages <laughs> oh my gosh we're such weirdos i know but i got a bunch of great ideas now so i've got apps and i've got a book and i've got a you know trainer online and it's so i'm i'm on fire with that yeah, yeah. you know who you might like um i actually just found her podcast and i just started listening to her and she's she's great she's young but she's been doing her mother has always been a yogi. So she's been doing yoga for a long time. And then she kind of burned out on it very young and just started going to the gym. And now she kind of combines it. It's um, her name is Catherine Bruni Young. And her podcast is called, I think it's called Mindful Strength. It is. I knew you were going to hear it. I am on, I'm on it. Good. I did first class yesterday. Oh, cool. Oh, right. She's got like an online studio thing now, doesn't she? She has a free course. So I started with the course and I did the three upper body exercises. I watched it. I didn't even do it. I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> yeah. But then I did my yoga practice <clears throat> and I integrated it. 
and that was great. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I just gave her a nice little plug and I don't even know her, but yeah, yeah, yeah. She's good. So I just had this sort of non sequitur question come to mind that I want to ask you, which is with your chaplaincy, do you plan on doing any kind of different work? Like, do you work one-on-one with people or in a different setting or does is it really just like a process of deepening for you? Well, you know, I had an idea that I might teach chaplains and, and caretakers some simple yoga snacks, basically is what I call them, you know, really short practices anywhere from 30 seconds to three minutes. And I came up with this body of work because you have to write a thesis as well. Mm. Your thesis has to relate to Buddhism and it has to relate to chaplains. So that's what I came up with. And I did go to the contemplative care symposium that is put on by Garrison Institute and the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care and and presented this. I was one of the presenters for that event. And that was great. But really, I'm kind of, in a way, doing what I've always been doing, which is teaching Mm -hmm. for many years. And now I'm I'm still teaching yoga, but I'm moving more toward teaching more meditation and really directing that, you know, myself into that area. And like this teacher training I just described, I feel like my chaplaincy is that I'm giving this to people who are taking it into the field. Mm, yeah, that's I'm, really cool. I'm not going into the, that field. You know, I'm not going into the hospital and I'm not going into the jail but I'm sort of radiating these teachings out to those areas through other people. And I think that's my chaplaincy. Yeah, that's great. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing, which is the last time we spoke, I wrote this little phrase down that I want to share. You said being on the cushion is the cooking. The meal is the rest of your life. I love that. Did I say that? (laughs) You did. I love that. (laughs) I thought when I read it, you would be like, oh, yeah, I say that all the time. But it sounds like that just came to you in the moment that we were talking last time. I I remember it, but I'm really glad you reminded me that I'm going to use that. Yeah, it's really (laughs) it's really helpful. Right. Because I, you know, like you were mentioning in the beginning, the very, very beginning of our conversation, like when you first. The first experiences of meditating for most people are not like the first experiences of asana practice, right? You don't get that endorphin high. You don't get that like, you know, if you're a dancer and you go into your first yoga class, it's like, oh, I, this feels amazing. You don't, it's, it's, it's a very different experience. So to think of it as like, just like when you're cooking, it's the chopping and the washing and the prepping isn't always the fun part, but then you get to enjoy the meal. I think you're right when people come to meditation, because it looks so easy. Uh If you look at a picture of somebody meditating, you're like, whoa, I can do that. Uh And it looks like it might even be pleasant, you know, and blissful or some other thing. And when you go to a yoga class for the first time, you absolutely do not expect to stand on your head, Mm. you know? You're just like, okay, triangle pose and, you know, and a forward bend, that seems good. A little twist, you know, I can do that. But in meditation, we we don't have that idea. We think the experience of sitting is going to be something special. And it is, but it's not usually what people thought. And 
And in the end, you start to figure out, or maybe not the end, but hopefully sooner than that, you start to figure out that this is practice for the rest of your life and that the results will show up in the rest of your life and not necessarily when you're on the cushion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Putting in the time. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And you have to do the technique, you know. You really have to do the technique or you won't get the benefits. Right. Can't have just the, the re- repetitive earworm where you can be saying that and still be thinking your thoughts. Just I'm just sitting quietly. Yeah. 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 That's nice, but that's not meditating, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, well, that's a good quote. Thank yes, you. It's, it's a great quote. I think it's a good place for us to stop. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's just great to catch up with you. And and I'm glad I finally got to ask you my Cindy Lauper question. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Thanks. I will put links to Cindy's books as well as her current website on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 152. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a fabulous review, and I will send you all the good vibes. And until next week, enjoy your practice.